0: A few years ago, I started going to networking events. The first question everyone asks is, what do you do? When I answered, I help people heal after abuse. I realized that about 9 out of 10 people responded with something that reflected the image of a battered woman. It happened over and over again, and this really opened my eyes. I realized that we need to update the societal stereotypes of what abuse is, who it happens to, and who the abusers are. Over the recent years, in reading social media comments and hearing more feedback from people when I talk about what I do, I can see some of the common misconceptions and stereotypes like abuse only happens to women and kids. Abuse is physical violence. Men don't get abused. Women can't be abusers. Victims of abuse are stupid. Abuse doesn't happen here. Here meaning this country, this culture, this family this religion, school, neighborhood, etc. The problem is, these stereotypes blind us from seeing abuse taking place where we don't expect it, or where we don't want to see it. If we're going to be able to stop abuse from taking place, we first need to be educated on what abuse actually looks like in today's postmodern world. If you are aware of narcissistic abuse and how it's affected your life, you might want to share this episode with people that you care about, because maybe something in here will help them open their eyes, too. This is Meredith Miller, and you're listening to the Inner Integration Podcast, where you can learn the mindsets and tools to self-heal after narcissistic abuse. In this episode, I want to dispel three stereotypes about abuse. Number one is abuse is physical violence. The reality is is that invisible abuse is real and the destruction that it causes is just as bad, if not worse, because of its ability to hide. Number two, abusers are always overtly aggressive and violent. The reality is that the wolf in sheep's clothing is far more dangerous than the wolf who is clearly a wolf. Number three, abuse only happens to women, the poor, and the uneducated. The reality is that there is no typical victim of abuse. Number one, the stereotype is that abuse involves physical violence. The first and most important stereotype to dispel is that abuse is not just physical violence. There are many forms of abuse that are largely invisible. Invisible abuse is real, and the destruction it causes is just as bad, if not worse, because of its ability to hide. Physical abuse is the act of physical aggression and violence. It could be punching, hitting, kicking, grabbing, restraining, assaulting, etc. This is the most obvious form of abuse. Yet surprisingly, in some cases, these signs of abuse are overlooked by both victims and bystanders. Femicidio, femicide, is very common here in Mexico where women are killed for being women, which is why it has a different name than homicide. Many of these cases involve a man grabbing a woman waiting for the subway. He acts like they're having a lover's quarrel while she's fighting for her life and screaming for him to let her go. Security cameras show that most people look away and rationalize this as normal relationship behavior. That alone is alarming. It might also surprise you to know that most of the people intervening to stop the abductions of these women are other women. Of course, women could also be the physical aggressors. Physically violent women like to provoke men by physically attacking first and then pointing the finger at the man for reacting with physical violence. There are men who've had to learn to spread their arms like they're being crucified while a woman beats on them to be clear to the aggressor, the cameras, and the bystanders that he is not the aggressor. This is a challenge for male victims in a society that wants to believe that men are always the physical aggressors and women are always the victims of physical abuse. Sexual abuse is the act of sexual touch without the consent of the other person. This is a form of physical abuse. It could involve rape, molestation, or forcing a person into a sexual act against their will. In the recent years, thankfully these cases are coming out more than ever, Women and men who've been victims are finally feeling less shame about coming forward and calling out their abusers. They're breaking the silence. As obvious as sexual abuse should be by now, there are still people who continue to touch others in inappropriate ways while pretending that it's just part of their warmth and compassion or their value of connecting with other humans. Marital rape which is sexual abuse taking place between a husband and a wife, was still legal in most countries until the 1970s. It wasn't a crime in all 50 states of the USA until 1993. Psychological abuse is the most insidious type of invisible abuse. It's the covert, aggressive act of violating another person emotionally and mentally. Bullying is often a form of psychological abuse as it involves verbal aggression and intimidation. Gaslighting is another form. This is the distortion of another person's perception of reality by lying and making them believe that they're crazy to perceive reality differently. Devaluation is often used as a psychological weapon of torture by putting a person down and degrading their worth using shaming, blaming, and cruelty. The devaluation usually comes intermittent with false words and gestures that are intended to win over the victim's approval, placing their sense of validation in the abuser. That way, when the abuser uses devaluation tactics, the victim enters into the cognitive dissonance of, well, sometimes they're a wonderful person and sometimes they're horrible. They love me, they love me not. This intermittent reinforcement is the foundation of what we call narcissistic abuse. While it can involve many forms of abuse, it is predominantly a game of mental domination and emotional power over the victim. It's referred to as crazy-making because it's a mind fuck for the victim who often thinks that they just might be going crazy. Financial abuse is another invisible form of abuse. This is when a parent, a partner, a boss, or anyone who holds financial power is using that leverage to force the victim into submission, to do or not do what they demand. This could be withholding money, giving money with strings attached, or controlling the household bank accounts unilaterally. Invisible abuse is a silent killer. It kills people who you wouldn't expect to be victims. Sometimes, that's an actual death at the hands of the abuser, or it could be death by 1,000 cuts that destroy a victim's life, leaving them a shell of a person, barely able to function, with paralyzing, complex PTSD symptoms. Many kinds of abuse are invisible, yet leave long-lasting scars on the victims and survivors. These invisible forms of abuse are rarely talked about, yet incredibly common, There is currently a silent pandemic, leaving millions of people feeling alone and confused, struggling to escape the self doubt, fear, and so many unanswered questions. Invisible abuse is rarely talked about because of how hard it is to pinpoint, even by mental health professionals. Fortunately, there is a growing wealth of information available, particularly around the term narcissistic abuse. In the case of an alcoholic, The addiction comes in a bottle and the alcoholic's abuse usually looks a lot more obvious like yelling and rage. In the case of a narcissistic character, both the abuse and the addiction are mostly invisible. This makes it even more confusing for the target to put their finger on exactly what's wrong. It's therefore very difficult to point out and explain to others. This leaves the target feeling even more alone and confused in the struggle. This kind of abuse is silently happening on interpersonal, familial, and societal levels. I believe it is the leading cause of loneliness, anxiety, and depression in the world nowadays. Here are some examples of invisible abuse. Invisible abuse is the mother who says to her child about their dream or goal, what makes you think you're good enough to do that? They're not going to accept you or hire you. It's the father Who gets caught having an affair and says to his children, don't tell mom that you saw me with the neighbor lady. We're just friends and I was fixing her sink. It's the husband who controls all the financial resources of the family. He makes his wife deposit her paychecks in an account that only he controls and then gives her meager allowances for the children and household expenses while spending all he wants. It's the wife who never works and drains her husband's resources by overspending and frivolous shopping, or it's the wife who receives child support for her children and then spends that money on herself. It's your boss who knows that you're financially desperate, so you'll do anything for money, and he or she makes you do sexual favors or illegal acts and keep quiet about it in order to keep your job. It's your friend who shares your private information behind your back with someone else, or tell someone else lies about you, and then pretends to be your friend to your face. Number two, this stereotype is that abusers are always overtly aggressive and violent. The reality is there are different types of abusers, and the more hidden they are, the more dangerous they are. How many of you can relate to having a parent or a partner, or maybe even a boss or a friend, who treats you horribly, only when no one else is looking? As long as you're at home, in the car, among the four walls of a closed office or some other secluded place, the abuser knew when they could treat you how they wanted to. Then, as soon as you were out in public, in front of the extended family, or in a common area at work, the abuser was like a different person. They acted nice, polite, they loved on some other people, and others just thought that the abuser was an upstanding citizen or family member. Or maybe they aren't even all that obviously horrible, but they're always saying these little comments that are like indirect digs meant to tear you down. They'll always have some kind of plausible deniability, so you start to get really confused because you're not sure if they meant to hurt you or not, but it just keeps happening. Or maybe they might act supportive to you, and then in the moment when they promise to be there, maybe for your performance, your special event your serious doctor's appointment, your birthday or another holiday, they're just not there. They don't answer their phone, and then they're dismissive later when you're upset that they disappeared because you were counting on them. Along that lines is the person who has an important responsibility like picking up the kids from school, and they fail to show up, or they text you at the last minute long after they should have left work in order to arrive in time for the kids telling you that something came up and they can't make it, leaving you to handle the emergency. The covert abusers are the wolves in sheep's clothing. They look much more elegant and sophisticated than the overt abusers. They sound eloquent. They're smooth talkers who say just what people want to hear. Even their faux apologies can sound sincere. They're great at turning on the waterworks when they need sympathy after getting caught for doing something wrong. They look great on the surface and are often highly revered in society, the family, and their social circles. The wolves in sheep's clothing often make their way to the top in positions of power in society. In interpersonal relationships and families, their abuse is often more about what they're not doing than what they are doing. It's passive aggression at its finest. When their insecurities are triggered, they are masters at indirect degradation and abusing people without them even realize that they're being abused. Victims of covert abusers are the ones who end up with chronic health issues, often puzzling their doctors who don't understand why their patients are so sick. They suck away your life energy. These are the reasons why the covert type is so dangerous. You don't see them coming and they will pull you closer with their sheep's disguise. You'll want to believe in the image they portray, even after glimpses of who they are and hunches that something isn't right. Very few people can see the well-disguised wolf in sheep's clothing, and that makes it all the more difficult to tell people, including therapists, what's wrong. There are overt abusers who are more openly and obviously abusive. They are the wolves who don't even pretend to be anything they're not. They think they're God's gift to the world. Sometimes you'll win their favor and they'll shower you with gifts or empty words of praise. And if your self-worth is low, that's enough to keep you hanging on, waiting for the next shallow compliment or material gift. Overt abusers are blatantly materialistic. They mostly compliment you on your body, your car, your house, your status, your gadgets, and your stuff. The definition of narcissist in the DSM is written about the overt type. They're grandiose, and they blatantly tell you that they're superior and better than everyone else. They shamelessly shout their delusions of grandeur and their shark-like business practices from the rooftops and social media platforms. Despite their obviousness, bystanders can still overlook the abuse, like the lover's quarrel example I gave earlier. People can dismiss the abuse as, that's just what relationships are, or that's the family's business. Covert violence and aggression is more likely to fly under the radar, so it's more difficult to detect, and the covert abusers are much harder to spot. Here are some examples of covert abusers in action. It's the husband who says to his overweight wife who eats emotionally to mask the pain of her husband's absence, I just saw Matt's wife married today and she looks amazing. She's lost so much weight. She's just gorgeous. I mean, you wouldn't believe that she had three kids. You can just see how much she takes care of herself. It's the wife who says to her hardworking husband who she never compliments or appreciates, Dave just bought a new car for Melissa. It's gorgeous. He's so successful and generous. I can't believe... I'm still driving a 10-year-old Ford. It's so embarrassing. People must be thinking my husband doesn't really love me. It's the friend who you excitedly tell about someone that you really like who invited you to go to a wedding together. Your friend says nothing in the moment, and then 30 minutes later, she finds a way to work it into the conversation. You know, something I've noticed here is that Mexicans don't like to be alone, They'll invite anyone to a wedding. I mean, they'll take just anyone off the street instead of going alone. It's the jealous coworker who knows that you're leaving your job to focus on your business that you've been working hard on for years to build up to the point that you could quit your job. Your coworker acts interested in what you're doing, then, upon hearing about your success with your new business, tells you, I guess some people just get lucky. Covert abusers even apologize in a very special way that avoids admitting wrongdoing while making you think they're remorseful. It's what we call a faux apology. It's the politician who touches women and children inappropriately on video for decades, then finally gets called out for it. So he delivers a faux apology of something like, "'I'm old and social norms have changed. "'I don't believe I ever did anything inappropriate.'" but I'll listen and be more mindful of personal space. This, of course, is not an apology, but rather more of a justification of his actions while giving the audience the impression that he won't do that anymore, even though he straight up said that he doesn't think he did anything wrong. Of course, that just means he's going to keep doing it. Then he goes on to couch the accusations of his inappropriate actions in jokes the next time he speaks in front of an audience. And the cherry on top is when he announces his presidential campaign based on bringing back morality to America. It's the mother who abused her kids all their life, and then when called out on it by one of her adult children, she cries and says, I'm just so shocked that you think I was so cruel. When she was careful to show the cruelty only when no one was looking, but out in public or at home in front of guests, she acted like Martha fucking Stewart. Her statement is only a clever way of deflecting responsibility, turning it around on you, and coating the whole delivery with a pity ploy to make you doubt your reality. It's the friend who accidentally broke your ribs and never apologized, but did help you go to the store and get meds for the pain and inflammation. Then, months later, your friend asks you to help lift a table that he purchased on Craigslist, and you tell him that you can't. He says, why not? You're strong. And you remind him that's normally true, but you're still in pain and have limited ability to lift heavy objects since you're still healing from the broken ribs a couple months ago. He says, I'm sorry you're hurt. There's no ownership of him hurting you. It's not an apology for breaking your ribs, it just sounds nice. It's the friend or relative who tells you, I'm sorry you weren't more successful. When you tell them a story of abuse that you went through at work and why everything fell apart, now, while they had no responsibility in what happened, and this isn't supposed to be an apology, this person is abusing you while you're down. So I thought I would mention this tactic. I've heard it from more than a couple abusers. It initially sounds like compassion for your struggle, but it ends in a devaluation by reminding you that you failed. It's incredible the ability some covert abusers have to fake an apology or say some words that sound good on the surface, yet somehow totally avoid taking any self-responsibility for their actions or showing any real empathy for your struggle and pain, and on top of it, adding something that just rubs salt in the wound. Now, I don't want abusers of any kind in my life, However, if I had to choose between an overt and a covert abuser, I would pick the overt one because they'll tell you exactly what they think and what they're doing. They'll write it shamelessly all over their social media and announce it to the world. And often, they're also not so smart. It's a lot easier to point out what's wrong when the abuse is overt, even if there will always be people who turn a blind eye to the most blatant forms of aggression. Number three. This stereotype is that abuse only happens to women, the poor, and the uneducated. The reality is that abuse is happening around the world, in the poorest and richest countries, in the poorest and richest neighborhoods. It's happening to people of all genders, socioeconomic classes, and educational levels. Abuse happens to people who had only an elementary education, just as it happens to people with PhDs and other advanced degrees there is no typical victim of abuse. It can happen to anyone. The World Health Organization studies, as well as other studies done in USA, found that household income is the strongest predictor of intimate partner violence. The studies identified risk factors of poverty, low education, young age, patriarchal social norms, and childhood exposure to abuse. However, my question is, How do you define violence? Are we taking into account the covert forms of aggression and violence? How many statistics don't even recognize invisible abuse? How does updating the definition of abuse change the profile of victims of abuse? I've noticed that poverty and low education usually means the abuse is more overt. It's more obvious forms of verbal and physical abuse. Wealth and higher education often correlate to much more covert forms of abuse. Not always, but usually. The more intelligent a person is, the easier they can pretend, lie, manipulate, and get away with it. Despite what a lot of people think, financial empowerment in education is not necessarily immunity to abuse. It definitely helps to be financially independent so you never have to depend on another person who can turn out to be an abuser. And you can always have the means to leave and start over if you should find yourself in an abusive situation. However, your financial well-being doesn't protect you from giving it all away to a poor-me sociopathic parasite type who travels host to host or hostess, spinning tales of pity and evoking your sympathy by letting you think that you're special because you're the only one they can count on. Or it could be that you're part of a power couple where you both make lots of money and your family or household is living very comfortably. You could even be part of the 1%. Yet somehow, despite your career status and financial success, your partner convinces you to let him or her control all the finances of the household. True story, last year I went to a speed dating event, and before it started, I was talking to the woman at the table next to me. She's a successful middle-aged woman who basically retired a while ago after selling her business for a lot of money. She told me that she dated someone briefly who literally told her, Why don't you just give me control of your financial accounts and I'll administer your money for you? There was recently a case in the news about a Canadian man who was convicted of killing his wife. He is a neurosurgeon and she was a physician. A two-doctor household is in a high-income bracket with two highly educated people who have status and are revered by society for their profession. A woman physician is an empowered woman with advanced degrees in financial success. Nothing about that picture sounds like the typical environment of abuse that we are to believe from statistics. However, after being married to him for almost 15 years, he killed her just two days after she served him divorce papers. That is, of course, the most dangerous time, when the abuser knows that you're leaving because they have nothing left to lose. When you are breaking up or getting a divorce, be sure you're already at a safe and secret refuge before the abuser finds out that it's over. Never underestimate the abuser's ability to take your life because of the shame and humiliation of ending the relationship not on their terms. Some people were upset at the headlines that said, Neurosurgeon Takes Wife's Life. They felt he didn't deserve the dignity and respect of that title anymore after what he did they have a point. Personally though, I think it's a good thing that they ran headlines like that because it shines a light on another face of abuse that people often don't think of. Here was this guy who excelled in his career. He was a revered surgeon. He saved lives and he had a lot of trust from his colleagues in social circles, yet he clearly has no conscience. He killed his wife in their bedroom nearby their three kids He pretended like nothing happened when his daughter walked in and told her to go back to bed. He stuffed his children's mother's body in a suitcase and dumped her in a river, trying to frame someone else. He went to work the next morning doing neurosurgery like nothing happened. The killer finally pleaded guilty last month after dragging out the court case for years in his attempt to maintain control from prison, hurting his children and his wife's family. He even had the balls to deliver a faux apology at the sentencing hearing. He said, Somehow I turned my back on my oath in calling and took a life. I don't know how I could cause such pain and anguish. I should have killed myself and not my wife. He had also said, There were signs early on that I was not a good partner or good husband, and I am surprised our marriage did not end sooner. Notice, He's ever so subtly blaming his wife for not recognizing that he wasn't a good partner and husband, and then acting surprised that she didn't end the marriage sooner. By the time the court heard testimony in the case of the Canadian neurosurgeon, they found out about physical and verbal abuse in the marriage. Apparently, in the couple's second year of marriage, the victim filed a restraining order due to his death threats, but she later withdrew the charges and gave him a second chance. This is quite common for an abuser to sweet talk their way back in and for a victim to grant them another chance because they love them and want to believe them. A subtle sign of psychopathy is how he said he was surprised their relationship didn't end sooner, when in reality, there was no surprise. He begged her not to leave him. He pleaded for her to stay for more abuse until he finally took her life. It wasn't her fault that she gave him another chance. It was his responsibility for manipulating her back into the relationship only to abuse her some more and eventually take her life. The victim's sister said, He's only sorry because he got caught, and his apology is bullshit. Does that sound familiar? Maybe you've had a similar realization about an abuser in your life. You can see this in most killers' statements once they're caught. They enter a state of self-preservation and say whatever they can to entice people to have sympathy for them in the actions they took. It's not remorse. It's simply the regret of getting caught. An important distinction, which the judge in the Jake Patterson case recently stated. I'll address that case in a future podcast episode. The press asked the mother of the neurosurgeon's victim if she had any words for other women who find themselves in situations of domestic violence. She said, Leave them. Don't give them a second chance. Her daughter had given her husband a second chance when he convinced her that he would work at improving himself. They don't change. I've never once heard of a single case of an abuser who changed. If you find yourself in a situation of domestic violence, whether you're a man or a woman, get out ASAP and bury the toxic hope that your abusive partner will change before they take your life or destroy your life to the point where you can't function when you've lost everything and you don't even recognize yourself. Women are more likely to die at the hands of men. Men are more likely to commit suicide rather than face the humiliation of admitting to society that they're being abused by a woman. The mother of the victim of the neurosurgeon went on to say that the kids were just about image to him. She said he had many, many women. He was never a husband and father. He doesn't care about anyone but himself, his career, and his money. She said he stockpiled money while his wife, and let me remind you, she was a doctor didn't even have her own bank account. Now, this is something I brought up before. Always, always keep your finances separate when you are coupling or marrying. You can have a joint account where you both put some money every month to pay mutual household bills, but keep your personal finances separate. That gives you options to get out in an emergency if at any point things turn bad. It's important to understand that sometimes abusers are in the upper echelon of society, creating the image of upstanding citizens, spouses, parents, and professionals while they abuse their partners, children, co-workers, and friends. The intimate partner and in family will always suffer the most. The Canadian neurosurgeon killer lived a life of luxury, painting a beautiful image of father, husband, family. He even came from parents who are a surgeon and a psychiatrist. Even psychiatrists and therapists can have children and partners who are abusers. Sometimes they're cut from the same cloth and other times they just don't see the invisible signs. Sometimes abusers pretend to be part of the upper echelon, like the infamous Tinder swindler, an Israeli man who conned several European women out of millions of euros, then used their money to flaunt a lavish lifestyle online in order to fish for more victims. You can see the whole case documented on VG when you look up the Tinder swindler. Don't believe everything you see in the images that people project of their lives. And by the way, if you ever see that guy's image on Tinder, notify the police, the FBI, or Interpol because he is wanted in several countries for his crimes. These are the drastic cases that make the news when someone dies or gets conned out of millions of dollars. Unfortunately, we don't hear about all the other cases where victims just barely survived and or were conned out of all the money and resources they had, albeit not millions of dollars or those who were depleted of their mental and emotional health and well-being through months and years of subtle degradation, or even those who take their own lives out of desperation to end the pain. I hope this episode cleared up some of the common misconceptions and stereotypes that failed to paint the true picture of what abuse looks like in our world today. What can you do about it? Educate yourself, Educate others who are open to listen, and don't waste your time or energy trying to convince those who don't care. Most importantly, have a zero-tolerance policy for abuse, use, and manipulation. That prevents you from being one of the statistics, and in doing so, you are participating in the important act of opting out of contact with people who desecrate their own humanity by abusing others. Developing and sharing awareness while opting out is the only way that we can ostracize the abusers and stop them from creating more statistics. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Inner Integration Podcast. I hope you learned something today that helps you see from a new perspective so you can take new action and transform your life after narcissistic abuse. Remember, you are enough, you matter, and you got this. If you liked this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to get automatic updates on new podcast episodes as they're released. Visit us online at www.innerintegration.com where you'll get a free three-part video course when you enter your name and email on the homepage. Get loads of more free content to help you heal after narcissistic abuse on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Big hug to you.